On a Monster Monster Empire podcast this week, we separate the Jaegers from the Kaiju and talk Pacific Rim with its director, the great Guillermo del Toro. And even though we haven't done our paperwork, we tackle Pixar's prequel Monsters University and natter to its director and producer Dan Scanlon and Corey Ray. Plus, all the usual movie news, views and reviews on the only movie podcast that still sleeps with the light on in case Howie Mandel emerges from under our bed. Terrifying thought. Hello pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the Empire podcast. How the devil are you? Don't answer that, sir pre-record I can't hear you three people I can hear though are my wonderful Empire Pod people starting with a lady whose Celtic roots and Northern Irish upbringing mean her Jaeger name would probably be Paisley Thunder am I right Helen O'Hara? I I absolutely don't think so Uh, next we have the hero who edits the podcast every week battling the dark forces of RSI and our blithering incompetence to do so his Jaeger name Audacity Reboot it is of course Ali Plum my voice is my anyway <laughs> at last but almost certainly least is a man who loves monsters he dressed up as a zombie for our World's End shoot recently and he thinks Jurassic Park is the greatest film ever made his Jaeger name Dodgson Challenger it's Nick DeSemlian I have a Dodgson fact Do Dodgson you? of course being the uh, guy in Jurassic Park who, who uh, pays Nedry to steal the embryos Yes. Uh, the guy who plays in Cameron Ford is an acting coach and trained Madonna for the movie Evita Wow. Wow. And you interviewed him recently, didn't you? Yeah. Okay. More Dodgers and Facts next week. Look out for uh, that interview in an upcoming issue of, um, is it Empire Magazine, Nick? Mm, yes. Empire yes, Magazine. Yes. Okay, fantastic. Okay, time for your questions now. You've been bombarding us with Twitter um, all week, but mainly since we asked for you to bombard us with questions. Uh, the first one is from at CAM0601. After your top secret feature, what's the best visual gag in cinema? Interesting, because I think Top Secret, which we ran a big feature on this issue, has uh, probably three or four of the greatest visual gags in all of cinema history. As soon as he said Top Secret, I've all other visual gags have vanished from my head. Same here. The only ones Same I can here. think of are Top Secret ones. Yeah. My two favourite in the film, first of all, it's the train pulling away from the station and then emerges it's the station pulling away from the train <laughs> and, and a guy genius. runs after it and jumps on a tree. That's amazing. <laughs> and my second is really subtle-ish by the standards of Top Secret. It's the props room. Oh, yes. Where there's a sign on the door that says props room. They go in and it's full of boat props. And, pro- it's, it's, and propellers. It's a, and propellers, and, yeah, yeah. It's an yeah. amazing, amazing gag. Also, uh, at, the end of the, at the end of that sequence, um, Falcom or Lucy Godridge uh, are trying to, get out, <laughs> trying to get out of the room and they look down into the street and for no reason whatsoever it cuts to a model and there are mice running through the street <laughs> amongst all the model cars and whatnot. The model apparently was borrowed from the set of uh, Superman. Uh, it was still it was still in storage apparently, Superman 3 or something like that. Um, but also at the end of that sequence, the problem sequence, yeah. three German guards burst into the room and uh, arrest them. And the three German guards are played by uh, Jerry Sucker, David Sucker and Jim Abrahams. Wow, and, uh, I, I'm, awesome. I'm full of, it's almost like I wrote a feature in Top Secret. I don't believe that. Yeah, crazy. Anyway. This, this obviously got me thinking about the Naked Gun films, but of all the tens of thousands of amazing visual gags, the only one I could think of straight away was Anna Nicole Smith uh, having a penis at the end of the third. <laughs> I don't know what, that's the worst joke probably in the whole trilogy, but I watched that film on Netflix the other weekend, so sorry I love, um, you know, if you're talking about Said I Said, who are just brilliant at, at visual gags, they were, I don't know if they were the first people, but certainly the first time I saw the gag where someone is posing and then behind them there's a picture of them doing the exact same pose, which Lloyd Bridges does in Airplane. Uh, and uh, there's the amazing gag in Airplane <laughs> where we meet Robert Stack and he's looking at himself in a mirror and then he steps, he through, steps the mirror, through the mirror <laughs> which is just <laughs> bonkers makes no sense whatsoever but it's just cracking talking of mirrors I'm going to nominate uh, Duck Soup with that oh, yeah. amazing scene oh that's pretty amazing which is pretty much done in one shot I think it's done in a few shots but it's uh, Groucho and Harpo 
like mimicking each other in the mirror. Astonishing. Go to YouTube, watch it right now. Uh, and I believe the Marx Brothers ripped off uh, Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell uh, from Evil Dead 2 for that. Am, am I right in thinking? They went into a time machine, travelled forward in the 1980s, saw the, the Ash do it in right. Evil Dead 2, yeah. then went back mm-hmm. to the 1940s and did it again. Using their DeLorean. Yep, that's yeah, all, that's, that's all, uh, pretty much what happens. That's canon. I want to mention about 8 from Airplane. Uh, shit hitting the fan. Uh, okay, boys, let's take some pictures. Then there's the drinking problem. The jars of mayo in the mayo clinic. It goes on and on and on. Yeah. But for Naked Gun two and a half, Frank is talking to the waiter and he says, give me the strongest thing you've got. And the waiter waves over this bodybuilder. On second thought, how about a black Russian? Yes. And then the waiter turns to the camera and goes, no. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I rewatched Spaceballs uh, before I went over to New York to interview Rick Moranis, and that first shot, which spoofed Star Wars, where the spaceship just keeps coming and coming and coming and yeah. coming and coming, that's that's gold. I love when she takes off her coils of hair, and they're actually earphones. Oh, and her massive hair dryer. You're forgetting the massive afro comb. That's really amazing. <laughs> Maybe I should bring him up, but Austin Powers absolutely loved this shit. I'm thinking more of the shadow puppetry penis stuff the, the melon stuff that you were yeah. the, you know hiding Austin's nudity is uh, yeah there's some really I inspired mean, stuff it, it is dumb like I know it's dumb but you're laughing too much and it's just so joyfully delivered mm. yeah I mean yeah. who doesn't like a good cock hiding gag right it, it seems redundant to keep going back to top secret but uh, I'm going to say another couple the giant phone the giant phone the giant phone which David Sucker still has is <laughs> is amazing I love the I love the way they play with perspective and foreground and background. Those guys are just the you know, the inspired. magnifying glass also the magnifying glass. Peter Peter Cushing's magnifying glass and uh, perhaps the weirdest visual guy in a in Top Secret is <laughs> is the um the the giant pigeon statue upon which birdmen land and <laughs> urinate and then at the end of the scene when Val Kilmer Lucy Godridge exit the frame. The giant pigeon statue takes a massive giant pigeon statue shit, which doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But it's just beautiful, beautiful joke. Oh my god, I love Top Secret so much. Uh, okay, anyway, uh, I'm sure we didn't answer that question at all because we didn't mention Buster Keaton, we didn't mention Jackie Chan, we didn't Steve mention oh, Charlie Chaplin. The general. I just saw Lone Ranger and I was thinking about the general the whole way yeah. through it. Pixar are great uh, visual gags as well. We didn't mention Anchorman. Stonehenge, Spinal Tap. Stonehenge. Amazing, amazing. We could talk about this all day, but... Uh, We'd uh, get fired. We'd get fired, yeah, because we would <laughs> we'd be up here all day. Uh, at IronMonkey88 asks, what character who got killed off did you miss most in the film's sequel? Obviously Cyclops in X3. Come on, loved it. No, um, my real answer no, to this the, would the, be... The, the, listen, we could have a long... Uh, Helen and I especially could have a long conversation about the mistreatment of Cyclops in the X-Men franchise, but I'm sure people have already tuned off the minute they heard that phrase, so <laughs> please, please carry on. Hopefully you'll run with me on this one, but Ellen Ripley in Alien Resurrection yeah. isn't the character of Ellen Ripley, for obvious reasons. So for that, I, I will answer that question with her. I think Alien Free. I think a big part of why people didn't don't really like that film is that Aliens introduced so many great characters, and then two of them survived, and then didn't you know survive to the end of the film, and then at the beginning of Free, they've been killed off, and that was upsetting. Yes, yeah, it, it kind of renders a lot of Aliens kind of no, it pointless. does it's absolutely moot uh, in Earth. It's just it's it's uh, I, you know. A tragedy is probably the wrong word, but it's it's ridiculous. It's, close, it's yeah. ridiculous what happened. Every time I watched Aliens before Alien Three came out, I had a rush of adrenaline whenever they were escaping. Even th- even though I'd seen it maybe a dozen times, maybe twenty times, and every time they escaped from the planet, I still got that same surge of adrenaline. You don't get that now. 
which seems strange, but you know that those characters are doomed because of some arbitrary decision made by a studio executive or a, or a screenwriter, which just is 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 stupid. And it, it happens a lot in horror movies, especially where a, a character will survive one movie and only to be bumped off in the first five or ten minutes mm. of the uh, of the sequels. It also makes it very hard to reread Game of Thrones because <laughs> you're you're kind of reading all these point of view chapters from from people while thinking, well, you're not going to make it. No spoilers. Just saying that some people die, mm-hmm. but it happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, an Alien Three with Newt and Hicks might have been dreadful. Sure, but at least I would have liked to see her story continued. I would like to see them given the the courtesy of that. I've managed to kind of just distance the third one. I, I don't really consider it, so I can yeah. watch the second one and still enjoy it. I'm kind of with you on that one now. I've got I've come to that point where I you know, I think that they stop after two. A little bit like the Superman franchise for me. Yeah. My other answer to this question, which is slightly more light-hearted, uh, is Sean Connery not being in the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Now, obviously, he was old in three, so four, he'd be much, much older because it's like 18 years into the future. But there was a part of me that, I don't know, five minutes, a flashback, something? But anyway, probably yeah. the sensible decision from Sean to um, dodge that bullet. Uh, and we'll be talking more about him later uh, with the news of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Coming talking, back uh, to TV. Talking indie. Uh, interestingly, um, the wedding scene at the end of Crystal Skull was originally going to have uh, Short Round and Sala in. And I know this for a fact because I know Ki Huan, who played Short Round, and uh, he was contacted by Lucasfilm and asked if he was available. Didn't happen. Yeah, I, I do think that scene would have been improved by having, you know, it would have given a nice sense of finality to it. And also the gopher could have been there wearing a little tuxedo. Do you think, um, <laughs> Nick, you're a massive Lord of the Rings fan, do you think, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but Two Towers and, and Return of the King don't have an awful lot of character deaths or major character deaths anyway. So do you think do you think it misses Boromir? Do you think they could have put Boromir's death into Two Towers perhaps? Do you think he might have, been, he might have benefited that movie a bit more? I mean, in the book, he does die at the beginning of Two Towers rather than the end of Fellowship. But in, in, in I actually didn't remember that when first watching the film, even though I'd just read the books, <laughs> because it felt right the way that they, they split those books. Um, I, I didn't have a problem with that. I think so. I think it gives it a different kind of climax to yeah. the other two films, which have got big action set pieces, and this is more a smaller but more emotional yeah. uh, kind of ending. So I love the ending of Fellowship. I think it's one of the best films I've made. Yeah, I can tell you right now, and this is, a, this is perhaps a daft one, but uh, which character I'm going to miss in, in a movie next summer? I'm going to miss Han Solo in Fast Seven. That's how I'm going to miss. <laughs> if, if, is if he really he's dead? dead? If indeed he's really dead, Han he's been killed Solo. twice in that franchise. It's, I think. I, yeah, that's that, his name. Uh, Sun Kang's character in Fast and the Fast and Furious franchise. His Han. surname is Solo. Yeah. Solo. Yeah. Oh, shut up. Yeah. Spelt, spelt in a in a kind of uh, Koreany way, rather than S O L O. He was actually really good in Fast Six. The yeah. relationship between um, him and Giselle, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Oh, it Gal Gadot. Was... Yeah. On a serious note, I'm sure we're all thinking it. Uh, Judge Reinhold in Gremlins. Um, you know, <laughs> where was uh, Where was he? Where was he? In Does Gremlins he get killed too? in Gremlins? No, he just don't think he, they didn't bring him back for the second one. Although they did bring back um, the Fudderman's. Fudderman's. Yeah. To great effect. Yeah. That frustrates me the <laughs> yeah. most when they just don't turn up in the sequel and there's no explanation, they're just not there. When that well, happens, Keanu Reeves and Speed 2. Well, there's a kind of reference. Oh, no, there? there's, there's a story behind that. And again, that makes no sense. And then she says, oh, we well, didn't work out, blah, blah, blah. And I'm now going out with the Keanu Reeves wannabe, who's obviously just been tweaked from the script. And we're getting mad. Oh, it's just preposterous. Uh, okay. So let's move on to the next question, which is from at not you, ya Twitter. That's an actual Twitter name. Uh, favorite director trademark. Mine is from John Landis. He has doors being futilely barricaded against an unstoppable force. Gosh. Wouldn't say, that's a, wouldn't say it's a huge tra- trademark for uh, John Landis. I can only really think of it in Blues Brothers. Uh, but he, he has another trademark, which I love, which is See You Next Wednesday, which 
is a phrase that pops up in all his films pretty much uh, and in various ways so it's a billboard in one movie it's a uh, it's a porn movie it's the name of the porn movie that plays in American Werewolf in London and uh, and people set in dialogue and it harks back to Atlanta Dialogue from 2001 A Space Odyssey also director cameos that's another John Landis thing huge one mm-hmm. yeah Spielberg in Blues Brothers and um, oh, Frank, and Frank Oz. Oz Frank Oz and then Spies Like Us there's tons of them aren't there the, Spies Like Us the Coen Brothers and yeah. Sam Raimi and Into the Night which is my favourite John Landis movie is has tons of, uh, of director cameos including uh Jim Henson, uh, Jonathan Demme, Roger Corman, mm. just tons of them. And his last, his most recent movie, Broken Hair, was the last movie to feature both Ray Harryhausen and Michael Winner. Uh, last week I saw Passion, which is the new Brian De Palma movie, which is by no means great. Uh, it's got kind of a lumpy first half, but then the second half it turns into a proper old-school kind of 80s Brian De Palma film with split screens and Pino Donaggio soundtrack. And De Palma split screens, there, there's nothing better than that for me yeah. than a great De Palma Split screen. I love also sequence. a great bravura De Palma slow mo sequence with lots of elements. You know, whether it's the Untouchables or the end of Raising Kane, it's just or or Kalita's way with the you know down the down the staircase. The great at the bit end. at the beginning yeah. blowout where there's a news report about this politician. It's, it's being intercut with split screen windows of John Travolta doing his sound effects tapes and he's sticking on labels of like gunshots and explosions. It's just so smart. Mm. Love that. He's so good. Uh, we've got to mention Hitch and his cameo. So let's just get that out of the way. Uh, we've got uh, Capra and his crow. Burton and all of his ooky kooky wooky spooky uh, scary Johnny clowns yeah. Johnny Depp <laughs> have you noticed that Johnny Depp shows up in a lot of Tim Burton films <laughs> what a trademark um, you know creaky floorboards um, German expressionism all that kind of malarkey uh, but then you've got Kevin Smith who's obsessed with Star Wars and Jaws and obviously he's got his view Schooniverse and you've got um, what's the name of his uh, fast food restaurant is it Moobies Moobies and all of that shiz Tarantino does the same thing with the you know red apple cigarettes yeah. and uh, big kahuna burgers Although less and less, obviously, as, as yeah. time has gone. Shots from the trunk of a car. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Feet. Yeah. Edgar Wright's uh, whip pan. He's got a whole ton of um, sort of trademarky type things. Yeah. There's a lovely bit at the beginning of um, The World's End. This is not a spoiler, where the camera's kind of moving from left to right. And it's sort of a montage, but the camera's moving the whole time. And I, that's the thing he does in space. So yeah. it's nice to see that back. Yeah. That's very space John Woo loves his doves. Uh, I had that as well. We got Steven Spielberg's got a bunch. He's got the in Duel. You hear for the first time the kind of dinosaur death roar as the truck goes over. Spoiler: the cliff, um, and that appears in all of his films. <laughs> you realise if we say spoiler, just it doesn't really help. Yeah. Well, so I feel like Duel is kind of we could put that one to bed. Oh, and Sergio Leone, extreme close-ups of eyes, um, just those amazing like. You got yeah. Lucas with his screen wipes. Dissolves. Mm. dissolves, optic dissolves, optic dissolves. Is that that sounds like a thing? Uh, I will mention uh, very very quickly Sam Raimi's car, the Delta Oldsmobile '88, which pretty much pops up in all his movies, uh, with the exception possibly of Quick and the Dead. Although he does say it's in there under tarpaulin, but you know it's cheating. Thanks for that question. At not you, ya Twitter. Great name. Uh, at Mansbo asks, are you going to San Diego Comic Con? And if so, will you be dressing up? And as which character? Yes, we are. <laughs> yes, we are. Going... No, we aren't. No, yes, yeah, yes and no. Uh, we are going to San Diego Comic Con. We're going next week. Very, very excited. We're sending our biggest ever team, which means more people in the team. We're not bigger than we used to be. I hope not. Although some of us are. Um, me. Uh, but we're not dressing up, are we, Helen? No. We're not. No, we're not. Probably not. We'll have our geeky t-shirts on, I'd imagine. This got me thinking about the uh, best costumes that I've seen at Comic-Con. And, yeah. uh, this boils down to two. One is I saw a Japanese man dressed as a game of Angry Birds, um, <laughs> which was honestly astonishing. He had himself in some kind of catapult and he had a beak and uh, like little green pigs stuck all over him. It was astonishing. And also last year I saw um, 
a man and his son dressed as the Lord of the Nazgul and a, and a minor ring wraith. Oh, that's pretty cool. Are you kidding me? No, but the proper Return of the King spiky helmet, and it was it was amazing. The costumes are astonishing. The, co- the costumes are absolutely incredible. We will have a gallery on the site. We're going to be, or I'm going yeah. to be going around with a camera the entire time, taking pictures of the best costumes and, and putting them online. We've had just everything in the past, sort of like a steampunk Maleficent from Sleeping Beauty. I've mm. seen uh, a big boy crossed with a Jedi. So if you remember Big Boy from the um, from the Austin Powers movies, I think it's an actual chain in it the US. It is a chain, yeah. But, um, you know, that sort of uh, red, white check, but it was like Jedi robes. It was a really weird cross, but it was very, very well I've done. seen uh, my favourite uh, hybrid of that. I've seen a few, actually, over the years, but uh, uh, I, I love Elvis Trooper. He goes every single year. It's a guy who dresses up as a stormtrooper, but with Elvis' head, which is, which is great. Um, and there's some, oh man, the costumes are so astonishing. Uh, Ali's going for his first time ever we're going to have loads of coverage on the website Uh, we're going to have video diaries we're going to have podcasts after the fact and we're going to have daily blogs and news stories galore is that right? Hope that is so. correct. Yep. That is, that's what it says here. Okay, fantastic. Okay, thanks for your questions this week. Uh, as ever, you want to get in touch, we're on Twitter at Empire Magazine. You can hashtag us uh, via Empire Podcast. We're on Facebook as Empire Magazine. You can email us podcast at empireline.com. Okay, first of our interviews now. Barring Mel Wood and backstage of a Victoria's Secret show, Pixar HQ in San Francisco may just be the greatest workplace on the planet. Dan Scanlon and Corey Ray got to work there every day as they worked on directing and producing, respectively, the Monsters, Inc. prequel, Monsters University. And then they came here to our booth to talk to us. It's always nice to see how the other half live, I suppose. Anyway, they weren't too disheartened by the dystopian squalor to talk to Ali Plum, all in his lonesome, about all things Sully and Mike. Uh, now, there are a few things that I love about Pixar, any Pixar movie, and, and the, the Easter eggs are a huge thing for me. And you put all these things in here just to make sure that people have something to do on IMDb? <laughs> well, yeah, that and, you know, just to keep ourselves entertained. It takes so long to make a movie, and every single detail has to be decided on and created. So I think it's just bored artists. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of my favorite bits in these films are because of bored artists. Created, yes. yes. Do you have any of your own that you snuck in there specifically, or did you kind of leave that to the artists? Yeah, I have some. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, address of the Uzma Kappa house is 1419, which is the address of the house I grew up in. And then um, the day of the big scare final that, that Mike is getting ready for, he, he circles the date on the calendar, and it's December 8th, which is my mom's birthday. <laughs> Aww. Yeah. So sweet. Yeah. And also we've got uh, the Scare Pig, which we saw in the trailer and a little clip that John Goodman showed. Um, I just love the idea of saying the word Scare Pig and people yeah. know what I'm saying. Um, you know, the mascot for the rival a university, Feartech, uh, is inspired by your dog, Dan. Yeah, my dog, Carol. Uh, Carol is a Japanese chin, which if you've never seen it, it's just kind of a... They're like little tiny dogs with, uh, they're wall-eyed. They've got kind of one eye looking one way and the other. <laughs> and uh, when I was drawing it for the story artist, I said, you know, something like this, like uh, my dog. Because we wanted to, actually, we did it because we thought, how do you not, how do you know if this thing is a monster, like a student? Or oh, right, a right. goat or whatever it's supposed to be. <laughs> so we thought, oh, I guess the wall-eye will kind of help. Yeah. And then and then Jason Deemer, our character designer, made it look like an actual good uh design (laughs) rather than a doodle right right right. we were discussing earlier how it's thousands of times that you've seen it has anything shocked you in your latest viewing of it where you went that animator snuck in a you know an initial or this oh yeah totally Um, i mean i'm still seeing brand new animation in the background because 
while we've watched it a number of times um, or a thousand times, yeah. um, we're really focusing on generally focusing on the foreground and, and maybe the background composition, but maybe not the detail in the background. So I'm actually still seeing some stuff yeah. for the first time back there. Um, just yeah. some cool animation or, or having the characters do things that I didn't notice. I just realized we forgot to put Boo in it. <laughs> Crap. Oh, no. Dan, is, is it at this what? point you realize... <laughs> In, in this radio studio, you suddenly go, I've made a boo-boo. Yes, or I've forgotten to. <laughs> oh, well. Oh, well. You, you know, well, let's do it next time. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Next time. And this is a bit facetious, but you have to make sure that you don't scare people too much, right? This right. must be a genuinely very, very, very tricky thing because there's a moment towards the end of the film where you go, okay, you're actually really playing with this mm-hmm. and you've got to do it so well, otherwise you do have crying children. Okay. How do you make sure that you don't cross the line? We, um, you know, we don't know. We, we, we do our best to, to, to pull it back if it's too much, um, but we don't want to pull it back so much that yeah. it's not an experience, that it's not telling the story point. And, and it is tough. You know, you, you think when you were a kid, all the movies you loved, there were scary parts in it. Right. And um, Wizard of Oz is an absolute yeah. killer. Oh, <laughs> yeah. And um, my hope is that, and in the scene you're particularly talking about, is that the person doing the scaring is someone you know and, and it's a character you know and you're sort of on their side in that moment. But uh, I do remember the, the animator that uh, that animated that scene. I said, you know, make it really scary. And then his first pass is that, that is too scary. <laughs> that is horrifying. I will have nightmares about that for the rest of my life. And he said, you said. He had been kind of shaking and quivering. I mean, it, it, it was horrifying. So we, we did pull that way back. I can imagine. I would love to see that reel. I mean, I know I'm never going to in a thousand <laughs> lifetimes, but you don't want to have a, a 15 rated Pixar movie. <laughs> exactly. Also, music. Was this an all uh, late in the day orchestration type thing? Or was it, well, I've always got this in my mind. How did it work out for you guys? Well, you know, I mean, we, we knew we wanted to work with Randy Newman again. He had scored the first film, and um, we just felt like it would be interesting to to keep his style of music, but kind of when in going backwards to do another take on it that that had more college type music in it and had a little bit uh, more energetic music. Um, we were really psyched to kind of do uh, the drum corps and kind of the marching band type stuff um, to give it the college feel. Um, and then we also got some other kind of cameo music in there, which is really fun. We have uh, one of the dance songs is by Swedish House Mafia. And... Uh, that was a real coup. And the DJ is a real treat. Yes. The, DJ. <laughs> the tentacle DJ. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good fun. <laughs> yeah. Swedish House Mafia. That's, yeah. that's another we'll just call you guys up and see if it works out type deal. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, yeah. One of the music producers suggested it and uh, and we thought it was fantastic. And, and they're so much fun. And they were so thrilled to actually be a part of it. They came and visited Pixar and... Uh, and it was great. It's a really good yeah. track. Isn't it? I, I know. I, I walked out it's very going, catchy. I need to get that song. <laughs> um, do you have names for characters that don't necessarily get named? Or do you just kind of leave them be? Well, every character in the film has, has a name because the model has to have a name. Sure. Um, but, and they're all named after crew members on the show. So really? Each, each crew member has a monster. Corey's referring to is the background characters are all sort of organized by crew members' names, which is really fun because then everybody gets to point to someone and go, that's my monster. That's me. Yeah. Corey's is, uh, yours has like little bat wings. Yeah, I have little bat wing barrette kind of hair and then uh, tentacles. Yeah, and mine's a big 
tall, lanky creep with a mustache who looks like he has no business being at a college. <laughs> a tall, lanky creep. What color is he? So He's we can green. find him. Green. Yeah. And every time I would see him, I'd think, get that guy out of there. What's that guy doing at this college event? <laughs> You're really sleezing up the place. Yeah. Like, hey, it's a narc. <laughs> <laughs> what ended up kind of not making it that you kind of cooked up but couldn't quite fulfill? You know, there were... There were a number of story directions we went that we lost for, you know, obvious reasons. They just right. didn't work. Um, as far as the university itself, uh, the only thing I can think of is really a, a gag that I always liked that we never got to use, which was the idea of um, they don't only learn how to scare at the university. I mean, they also learn normal things. Uh, Business. And, yeah, Accounting. Right. Yeah. yeah. Engineering. I mean, the fun of the monster world. But we also had this idea that there would be um, – a class on uh, uh, city construction and demolishing, you know, so it would be big monsters who were just <laughs> learning how to destroy buildings. There'd be a Godzilla class. Yes. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, oh, that kaiju class would have just made my day. Yeah. You're not stomping correctly. <laughs> Watch out for the power cords. That's, a, that, that's an instant failure right there. Uh, we've got the toughest level now. It's Japan. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much oh, thank for you. taking thank the time. You. And our review of Monsters University is coming up later on the show. But first, our arbitrarily imposed format tells me that it's movie news time. What have you got this week, Jams? Well, um, starting off, I think uh, Disney are planning a live-action remake, reboot of The Jungle Book. Now, this may sound familiar because there was a one in 1994 starring Jason Scott Lee. Um, but this is part of a kind of modern, new thing that Disney's doing, which is turning a lot of their animated classics um, into live-action films. So of course, we've already seen Alice in Wonderland. Um, but also, last year here in the UK, um, Maleficent was shot. Mm-hmm. We've got a Cinderella coming up. That's right, yeah. Um, and, and I think more in the pipeline. I've heard rumours of Beauty and the Beast. So, you know, there, there, there are more coming, and now The Jungle Book is one of them. Now, this is really early days. Um, basically, all that's happened so far is that there's a script coming from writer Justin Marks, but we're looking to see what comes of it. Just to complicate things, there's also another Jungle Book story currently in development at Warner's with Harry Potter's Steve Clovis writing that. So it may become a race to the screen. The book's, of course, in the public domain, so nobody has the rights to it. So it could become a bit of a race, but that'll be interesting to see what happens. We also don't know, I mean, is this going to be a musical? Is it going to be CG animals? What are they going to do? We just don't know, but it is on the development cards. Interesting. I, <laughs> You're not sounding thrilled, Chris. No, I'm not sounding thrilled. Uh, uh, I've got a cold, in my defence. Uh, the Warner Brothers one should just give up, shouldn't they really? I mean, just no one wants to see a, a Jungle Book that doesn't have a Disney name attached. Don't well, I don't think? know. I mean, listen, you know, this the original Jungle Book, the original animated Disney Jungle Book is a, an overwhelmingly loose adaptation of Rudyard Kipling's stories. I don't you know. know what you mean. Well, there are vultures who talk with the accents of the Beatles in the yeah, yeah. original book. What? And and lots of jazz, sure. And it's it's <laughs> great, but perhaps, I mean, just spitball in here, it may not be the only way to do it. I'm going to throw something out there. Okay. Jungle Book. Yeah. Best songs in a Disney movie. Um, It's hard to argue, actually. No, I, I am partial to the 90s sort of Alan Menken stuff. I love... Mencken generally and what he and Hart, Hart Ashman did with Little Mermaid, building on their Little Shop of Horrors success, which is one of my favourite musicals. You know, I love all of that. I, I but know, I've been to karaoke with you many times. <laughs> I always have to do 
some little shop of horrors at karaoke. Yep. Anyway, point being, um, I, I love all of that, but yeah, you can't really argue with the quality of the songs in The Jungle Book. King of the Swingers, eh? Yeah, do you know the two actors, stroke singers, uh, were not together in the same room when they recorded that? They were in different wow. places. That is actually quite impressive. That's an interesting fact. That is an interesting fact, indeed. Uh, I think maybe only Mary Poppins can rival The Jungle Book? Mm, maybe? Helen's thinking. I don't know. People nowadays love the Lion King. You know, there's a, there's a generation that grew up with the Lion King and would probably put that up there. Ali, what do you got? Do you want the good news or the bad news? I want the uh, mm, bad news. Good, because I have no good news. <laughs> the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, as previously foreshadowed, is coming back to us, but in the form of a TV show. Fox, uh, who still own the rights of... Alan Moore's well the first one's much loved the first Leave Extraordinary Gentlemen I really like it is very mm. good uh, not just because it doesn't have Tom Sawyer in it they took the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen his beloved graphic novel that you know took a lot of Victorian era heroes so we've got Captain Nemo the Invisible Man Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde Mina Harker Dorian Gray together as the League uh, you may remember it from the uh, ignominious failure that was 2003 uh, movie where Sean Connery announced he was no longer going to appear in movies because of just what a disaster yeah, thanks, it was. Thanks, LS, both, LXG. Both, uh, yeah, he hasn't worked since, and nor has uh, Stephen Norrington, the director. Anyway, so Fox want to take this to the TV world because they own the rights and they want to do it. So mm. Alan Moore is probably incredibly angry, uh, but it doesn't sound like there's a lot he can do about <laughs> it. It seems to be Alan Moore's default setting. He does it? like doing that, doesn't like yeah. being angry. Um, Marvel's Agents of Shields, uh, of Shields, of Shield, uh, is obviously getting people quite excited and wondering whether they can take graphic novel and comic book properties to the small screen. In a way, if they pull this off, this would be extraordinary, but I feel like it's got such a bad stink that it just can't work in my eyes. I mean, it's an interesting one. First of all, because it would presumably be a period piece, uh, it would be a, a pretty big budget. So it's a big gamble. They clearly think they've got something there. I mean, Alan Moore is an interesting one. At, at the risk of sounding preachy, he objects to anyone adapting his work and says that it should be left just on the page it's only meant to be a comic it's not meant to be adapted and that's a fine position to take and completely reasonable at the same time he spent most of the last 15-20 years playing with other people's characters I mean which is what League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is um, and Lost Girls particularly after it so you know he's got to understand that there's a value in playing with other people's characters so if mm. they do something good and, and I mean maybe this can erase the aftertaste of that 2003 film mm. maybe you know, any really ambitious TV series is a thing to be applauded, I guess, and good luck to them. I hope it works out, because if it, if it is great and it lives up to the thing, it's great. If it's not, then we'll forget about it and move on to the next thing. The other news that's kind of auxiliary to this is that the pilot is being developed by the Green Lantern scribe, Michael Green. Ah. Now, when you watch Green Lantern, did you admire the script writing? I didn't. I was too busy running for the exit to admire the screenwriting. So, with that in mind, maybe we shouldn't get too excited but then again like I say this has if you actually think about it the potential of being incredibly good but I think I'd be more excited if it were on HBO or something like that hmm yeah, that's, that's intriguing a, that's a worry yeah. okay I don't know yeah it could be it could be fun who knows who knows okay my news story is that Vin Diesel uh, had lunch last week um, wow which is which is fascinating in itself I'm so but, pleased um, for him after all this time uh, more specifically, he had lunch with Marvel. Aha! Oh, yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, word comes through from, from Vin himself, via Vin's uh, Facebook page, um, that he had a meeting with Marvel, a general meeting. So we don't know exactly what this is. What do you think? He's going to play general someone. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> well, 
He could have been talking about, let's say, a Riddick comic or something, although I don't think that's a Marvel property, so it seems unlikely. Um, he did take a picture of this, what, didn't he? It was on his Facebook page as well, and it was him standing in front of an Avengers cover framed mm-hmm. on the wall. Mm-hmm. Is that a clue? And then uh, people were reading something into what he said about about that. He went, wow, I just had a meeting at Marvel. Oh, I can't tell you anything about it, because, you know, me with my projects, I get tunnel vision. And people are going, oh, the word fission appears in that, so therefore he's going to play the fission <laughs> in Avengers 2. The fission is, a, is an android um, who is a part of the Avengers team and is one of my favourite uh, characters. He's an incredibly uh, wonderful look to him as well. Mm. But very complicated character to explain the origin of the fission because it's so convoluted. You could maybe just skip some of that. We don't need origins for everybody. Yeah. Uh, he, and, he marries Scarlet Witch in the comics, doesn't he? Does. He does. So there, there's that. He does, and uh, there's yeah, there's an awful lot that goes on with the vision. I, I can't see the vision though being a huge, a focal point of Avengers two. Mm-hmm. So therefore, I couldn't see someone like Vin Diesel signing up to play a, a sixth or seventh banana role. But I could see him signing up to be the bad guy, and the bad guy in Avengers two could well be Thanos. Mm. And um, you know, for all Vin Diesel's uh, faults and foibles, mm. he, I think he'd make quite a good Thanos. He's got a Thanosy voice. He's got the voice for it. Yeah, he's got the voice. He's got the face. You could just, you know, paint him purple and away you go. There you go. Job's done. Everybody wins. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or could he be playing Ant-Man? No, he won't be playing Ant-Man. But I wonder could how much he? it costs because, as we all know, the price of diesel is notoriously oh, high these, these, these days. Um, and... Um, so Vin Diesel had lunch. That's nice. Yay. <laughs> Let's move on to another thing now, shall we? Is that it for the week's movie news? That is, that's absolutely everything. Hollywood, nothing, nothing else happened to that. Hollywood's it. just getting back to work, isn't it, after the uh, the 4th of July parade or whatever it was called? Thanksgiving. Did that just happen? Yes, that's Yeah, right. that just happened. Okay. Uh, so let's move on to another Monster Monster interview now. Now the movie news has been exhausted. Uh, Guillermo del Toro is, of course, the brilliant Mexican director whose obsession with and identification with monsters has led to some of the greatest fantasy slash horror entries of the last couple of decades, from Kronos to Pan's Labyrinth and the two excellent and, for my money, very underrated Hellboy movies. Pacific Rim, with its giant monsters called Kaiju, attack Earth cities, called cities, and face off against 250-foot-tall robots called Jaegers, may seem like a departure for Del Toro, but in many ways it actually might be his most personal movie to date. Either way, it's a staggering achievement, and Helen and I went along to talk to him when he was in London recently. Uh, we're delighted to be joined in our uh, travelling pod booth by Guillermo Del Toro, director of Pacific Rim. Hello, sir. Hola. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how's it, how, how are things? Welcome to London. Very happy. We yeah. had the premiere yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a premiere in Mexico a couple of days ago. We've started the word-of-mouth screenings with, uh, you know, People in LA, people in New York, and general audiences, it's been going beautiful. And we wanted to kind of talk about, we can't talk too much about spoiler mm-hmm. stuff, mm-hmm. but we wanted to talk specifically about one of the set pieces, which just blew me away, which was the, the Hong Kong. Battle for Hong Kong. Yeah, man, oh man. Yeah, that, that, was, that was like, thing I wanted to do from the beginning was to take a battle that starts in the ocean mm-hmm. and ends up in outer space, which was a very, <laughs> a very modest ambition, you know? So was that in the script initially when you got it? No, no. The, what, what happened is uh, I, I co-wrote with Travis. When, when I came on board, it was only eight pages of a pitch. I came up with the idea of the two pilots, the neural bridge. I, I started to try with Travis to integrate a little tale about coming together. And the perfect metaphor was... If you don't get together, the robot doesn't move or it doesn't work. And if you watch the movie, uh, the human story of every character is about trusting someone else. When I was preparing Pacific Rim, curiously enough, when I was writing the script uh, uh, with Travis, the thing that I watched the most was sports movies. 
Who's Here's Every Given Sunday, uh, <laughs> Friday Night Lights. You know, yeah. I, I was watching because to me the analogy was that. The analogy was a guy that was retired. Uh, it, it never innocently I never thought of Top Gun it's what people keep bringing Top Gun I go no 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 it's Hoosiers yeah. you know, but, but every like Miracle all those my sports life as you can imagine is zero so I was watching sports movies to get the, uh. the, the sort of the underdog that comes back and, and that was part of the structure that I noticed repeating in sports movies uh, I was not looking yeah. at action movies I, it's funny. The guy with the bad knee, or the, the guy yeah, with the, the bad damaged shoulder, yeah. or whatever. Yeah. The, the 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 rookie with Dennis Quaid, you know, <laughs> yeah. the, the the guy that is too old, the, the natural Robert yeah. Redford, you know, yeah. So is that why you literally have one of the Jaegers pick up a a boat and swing it like a bat? <laughs> like a bat? Not not so much. It's not an homage to Barry Levinson. <laughs> <laughs> no, what what happens is I scouted Hong Kong very very carefully, very detailed. What what is what is strange is we go into this elaborate scouting, and I have uh, no set piece. I mean, I I'm gonna build the battle. Uh, is this? Uh, okay. Yeah, I mean, I go, I'm basically choreograph. I, uh, Travis had written like in in his first draft, he wrote uh, a few battles that were too crazy, this and that, and I extracted stuff and I put it on a thing that was I called the chopboard. Okay. Good ideas, yeah. and I place them there. And I said, I'm gonna build the set pieces visually. So we go to Hong Kong on a scouting trip, and we are in a boat. We are in a in a twice in a helicopter, and we were uh, in a in a car. We scouted Hong Kong by air, by land, and by sea. And in each each time, I would go, Oh, look, look, let's go to those docks, and we moved and go to the docks and I say oh they should use these cargo containers and and you know what is in the cargo containers vehicles and sofas and TVs I say oh it would be great that they hit each other and sofas fly out then we are we are scouting by land uh, or by sea and, and, and a, a huge tanker goes by and I go oh the Jaeger should use it as a baseball bat you know uh, so it was like that and then on the helicopter we saw the city at night, and I was flying through the neon-lit night, and I said, oh, the rain, yeah. illuminated by this. Yeah. It, like, and I thought immediately of Dario Argento and Mario Baba. <laughs> so, what is weird is uh, the movie is constructed from cue. The, the reason why I think we don't look like any other summer movie ever yeah. is because it's, there's a lot of gothic and fantasy sensibility to the visuals yeah. of the movie and, and retro. And finally... In this scout in Hong Kong, I get the cheapest map from the concierge at the hotel, and I lay out every the whole battle. Uh, so geographically, it makes sense. We scouted the the island that would have the Shatter Dome. Uh -huh. I made it, it. The movie is geographically really, really clear. Uh -huh. Hong Kong is to the right of the Shatter Dome. If you're looking left to right, blah blah blah. I lay out the whole Hong Kong plan on a like three dollar map, and then I start storyboarding. That's nice to hear because when people come to London and shoot films in London, they geographically abuse the place. Yeah. Yes. So that's nice that you've kept everything. Well, that was that was a lesson that I learned from Hitchcock. Hitchcock used to say, uh, even if you break it, like in Vertigo, you know, yeah. uh, those journeys make no sense. Yeah, let's go to the Redwood Forest. Yeah, <laughs> it'll take only nine hours. You know, it, but 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 it, 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 he really normally was very much a stickler for for going into real places mm. you know and uh, another uh, aspect of sports movies is the inspirational speech yes you mentioned any given Sunday I mean Pacino's yes. inches speech is now iconic Correct. and uh, there's an iconic line in the movie which was iconic 
the minute the trailer came out yeah. and we're canceling the apocalypse. That's it Travis Beecham's line. Yeah, is it? Was yeah, that, the, the speech. The speech has many fathers. Mm. Uh, I say most of the DNA of the body of the speech came from me. Okay. But stealing it from obviously Henry V. Yes, <laughs> as everybody. He does. doesn't care anymore. He's, he's, he's I think his royalties are long gone. <laughs> no, but there's always the Saint Crispin's Day speech in every yeah. every big speech. There's something. He's one of the greatest speeches yeah. ever made, you know, written. Uh, but the the line we're canceling the apocalypse is 100 percent Travis. Mm-hmm. And and uh, what I liked is that uh, to me that's the idea of the movie that. Everybody, you see everybody, you see a corrupt guy like Ron Perlman, you see a, a sort of a tough guy like the Australian guy that is the, the antagonist. Everybody at the end of the movie is necessary to save the world if they trust each other. So they're together canceling the apocalypse, you know? Yeah. And I see Luther, you know? And I say to Neil Cross, that American guy really did a great London accent in, in Luther. And he says, no, it's the opposite. And, and I was in such awe that I wanted to work with Idris instantly. And uh, the moment we opened the casting, uh, I went for him. I mean, we had, we, for a little bit, we were uh, toying and talking about the idea of Tom Cruise because we were coming out of Mountains of Madness and all that, but we could never make it work. And then they said, who do you want? I go, Idris Elba, <laughs> instantly. I'm constantly watching TV. Like I, I got um, an actor called Jim Beaver from uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Deadwood and from yeah. uh, Justified. Yeah. Yeah. He's on Crimson Peak. And he shows oh, up fantastic. in a couple of episodes of Breaking Bad as well. He's amazing. Yeah. Yes, yeah. and he's amazing. I think that uh, I think TV is in a golden time, right now, golden age of actors and writers, and generally directors too. I guess <laughs> it's a really beautiful time for TV. So you know, you better watch it. If you're casting, you're you're a very uh, meticulous man. Um, how detailed did you go in terms of the breakdown of of how much money it would it would cost to build Jaegers? What that would do to the world economy? What the the attacks? We we, the we generated a 400 page Bible for the movie. Uh, we we generated a, we no we we based a lot of the social state in, in into World War Two. Yeah. You know where where if you really shut down the Pacific Ocean. I think the number is staggering. I think that about 90% of the world traffic occurs through the ocean. Huh. And, and most of it is the Pacific Ocean. Uh, so you would literally shut down the, the flow of food. Hmm. And food would become the coin of the realm. It would be the, the trade. Hmm. So you would go into a rationing situation where you hmm. would have ration, rationing cards, which we show in the movie. Hmm. You would be paid in rations. Uh, you would have beachfront property would be completely uh, worthless. Mm. So the cheapest, uh, the cheapest land would be the one right in front of the ocean. <laughs> the, uh, uh, the the way the the cities would operate uh, would be like little feudal. Uh, yeah. thing. I mean, we went we went through all of what would happen with kaiju poo, you know. Uh, what would happen if a kaiju died? You remember that famous footage of the whale yeah, trying yeah, to be yeah. blown up? Yeah. Imagine a thing that is the size of a 85 whales. Mm. What do you do with that corpse? Nothing. You you start building around it. So we created a thing that is called the bone slums. Yes. When when a kaiju dies, it becomes toxic, and you can reclaim the land legally. Anyone that decides to live there is, is for free. So a lot of slums move into the bones. Yeah. We we made all this stuff up, which is in the movie, but is in, is as background. Yeah. We designed then, from the visual point of view, 
we did stuff that is really crazy. If you see Hong Kong, we went into the shops, we did kaiju warning signs, we did we we put everything in the shelves that you don't see in the movie, but it's there. And in the in the control rooms and the cockpits for the pilots, if you really went and visited the set, you would see the markings are all make sense. You know, they go um, four, five, six, five, four. I mean, like I can tell you, uh, you look at Gypsy, yeah. and it's marked. Uh, from four to six and six to four uh, we uh, and in the center is two and then the console has a little sign that has it says jaeger or jaeger operational um, console voltage uh, it has all the specifications do not disconnect while the jaeger is in operation you, you've you've obviously th created this world now you're kind of thinking ahead um, to the future, if if this does well, you know, do you know what you want to do next? Do you do you want to go back here? Have you got you, oh, you're, you're yes. sparking oh, immediately? My God, <laughs> yes, it's like I mean, I I've never been as happy shooting a movie ever, ever like shooting this movie. So how do you how do you you know manage your every day? I mean, do you have a really meticulous <laughs> diary? It's a serious question. Well, you know, no, I do. I do, in a, I do in a way. I wake up early and I do my writing projects in the morning. Mm -hmm. I all I'm every day, every day of every every week I write, and if if uh, I write a, a piece of a fiction, a prologue for Penguin, whatever I'm doing, you know, I I, I write prologues for horror books. I yeah. write all these things in the morning. Do you ever get writer's block that early? No, I can't. I can't afford writer's block. <laughs> I, I really can't. I I uh, like right now I am uh, uh, rewriting Dark Universe, the mm -hmm. DC. Yeah. Property for Warners. Uh, as soon as I'm done with that, I'm rewriting Beauty and the Beast because uh, I got notes from Emma. Mm -hmm. uh, as soon as that's over, I'll have something else. You know, that is the morning. Then I go to my office, to my man cave, and I, and I start working on something else. If I, if it's design, for example, we are right now designing Crimson Peak, sculpting the creatures of uh, the strain, mm -hmm. and. Uh, and you know, then I will be doing. I manage like by compartmentalizing, and I spend uh, X hours on that on the design of one movie, X hours on the other, and so forth. I saw one of those uh, models from the strain on your desk yeah. when, when I was in your offices a couple of months ago. Those are some scary looking creatures. Yes, they are, and and they are they are they are. I mean, my hope is that uh, we can bring uh, back the nastiness of vampirism, <laughs> but you know. We're shooting the pilot. It's, it's funny because we're going from Pacific Rim was 70, uh, sorry, 103 days of shoot. Hellboy 1, by comparison, was 135. Mm. Uh, Crimson Peak is 70 days, but the strain is 20 days. Wow. So, you know, it's, uh, when people say, oh, are you going back to something smaller? I go, absolutely. <laughs> right away. Right away. Obviously begs the question, what, how about uh, Crimson Peak? What can we expect from that? Well, Crimson Peak is, is really, really visually very, very uh, mannered and manicured. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a very, very uh, different movie than I've ever done. It's a, it's a, uh, at the same time, uh, a classical sort of Daphne du Maurier gothic romance with ghosts added. But it also has incredibly brutal, violent moments uh, and has at least one kinky uh, sex scene. You know, which for me is rare. Are you adding more as you go along? Is that <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> you're just keeping up one. No, just uh, I think that there's one surprising. I mean, I I normally uh, I'm very prudish about yeah. 
sex. I mean, the only sex in my movies was the amputee sex and Devil's Backwards. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going for my second, my second scene. <laughs> okay. And that's you, you, it's set in England. Uh, it's set in Cumbria, yeah, in yeah. the north. Yeah. It's ghost territory, you know. Yeah. It really is the most uh, traditional way I can do it and then within that traditional way I want to disrupt the rules of that genre a little bit by bringing some really strong violence unexpected and some sex in an unexpected way too. We're hoping to do some uh, some small unit with me shooting landscapes in Cumbria but or we will go to Newfoundland uh, at the way north in Canada where we're finding landscapes that are sort of similar but mostly it's on stage okay it's a very very stage bound movie is this a much smaller movie I'm guessing than yeah the oh, much much more, infinitely yeah. smaller yeah a very claustrophobic little movie you know it, it is it is um, it's a twist on the on the whole story you know when I watch Victorian drama with my daughters and my wife you know, or class porn like uh, Downton Abbey. You know, is is I, I I just go. Everybody wants to get married in this in these movies. <laughs> it's like the is the end of on end end alls is to get married. Mm. And I wanted to play on that on Crimson Peak. I I, I don't want to elaborate more, but I want to sort of uh, start with a great love story and then it turns into a horror story. <laughs> So is Crimson Peak the, the house? Is it a, it's a house, yeah. It's a house, okay. It's a house. It's, it's, it's a land at the top of a, a, a red clay uh, mine, that is, and it's a black house at the top of a mountain. Uh, I'm sure you're aware there's a, a groundswell of support that's growing over the last few days for Hellboy mm-hmm. 3. It is, it is, it is, it's been very, very active. I mean, look, I, I, we're trying to pursue it here and there. It's not exactly that we can kickstart a movie of that size, you know, is is really quite big, and and I, we need to do it in the next six seven years because Ron is not getting any younger, yeah, you know, and and I don't think you want Hellboy chasing someone in a rascal, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it really needed to be. T- we need to do it soon. No, because that, that's a movie you've got you've had mapped out in your head for a while, isn't it? Or, yeah, is no, it on it, paper yet? Or it is. No, no. I, yeah, I can I can tell you the the story from beginning to end. Mm. Right now, uh, is is just that uh, it is. He turns into the beast of the apocalypse. Mm. No spoilers there for those that like the comic, yeah. and he needs to bring some apocalypse down and. Right now, that bar, by the way, has been raised considerably. It has a little bit. You know, I mean, in the last three, four movies of the summer, bringing down the apocalypse has been, (laughs) is going to become a little expensive. It is. Have you seen the the World's End yet? No, but I've seen uh, Star Trek where, you know, uh, accidentally they destroy half a city. Yes. (laughs) And even something like This is the End, which had a $25 million budget, that, that realizes the apocalypse pretty and that also has a beast of the apocalypse as well on a fairly large large scale so you know i'm I'm not sure it will happen if it doesn't happen uh i would love i mean i i told mike can you let me do it as a comic and he mike said no the comics are my domain 
Right. Hellboy does in the comics, Hellboy does what I tell him to do. <laughs> and I go, I'll do it, that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> so what would you do if it, if it didn't happen? I, I, would, I would hold the campfires and sing Kumbaya and tell, <laughs> tell the story to anyone that wants to listen to it. Yeah, because I, I, I know you told me in the past that Myers would come back into it and there would be, uh, you know, I, I really yeah. want to see the resolution to this. this would be, yeah. yeah, well, you know, if, if it happens, it would be great. It happens. Okay. And, and if it's ever officially written off, we're going to get you back on the podcast and you're going to I can tell you the story. the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, let's, let's do this the moment Ron gets the rascal <laughs> I'll come back to the podcast and okay. tell you the whole story alright it's a deal it's a deal uh, Guillermo del Toro thanks for joining us thank you my pleasure thank you man thank you. cheers bye bye guys what a guy did he have his briefcase uh, full of blu-rays with him uh, not not in the room no because he, he, you were saying he carries around yeah I don't know if he still does but he used to um, to carry around I guess these days everything's streaming isn't it but Guillermo used to walk around with a suitcase filled with DVDs what he would do is he would buy two copies of every DVD or Blu-ray that he bought and one he would keep at his man cave so he has two houses in LA one is he lives with his family and the other one is a <laughs> huge man cave dedicated to all sorts of uh, you know memorabilia and artifacts uh, both from his movies and from all sorts of other arcane sources uh, it is an astonishing place to be and it's filled with books and DVDs and it's just amazing uh, so he keeps low he keeps one copy at his house and he puts the others into plastic sleeves and carries them around with him and so whenever he has a bit of time he pops on a movie watches maybe 20-30 minutes of it and then absorbs ideas and stuff so he's a voracious devourer uh, of of uh, visual media at all times does he have his Blu-ray player in another suitcase? I imagine he does and then he has the nuclear football in the third. He so, does. He uh, does. Pacific Rim. Pacific Rim. Yes. Thanks. That was a great segue, actually. Yes, let's start our review section with Pacific Rim. I forgot what we were talking about. Yes, Pacific Rim. Uh, what are our thoughts on Pac Rim? Um, I uh, enjoyed this. Um, I was on set and everything, so I was kind of primed and, and wanted to to love it. And certainly, visually, it looks absolutely astonishing, as you'd expect of Guillermo del Toro. Um, you know, some of the fight scenes are absolutely out of this world in particular there's a set piece in Hong Kong middle point of the movie mm. that absolutely blew me away it's kind of neon lit it's raining and it just looks like it looks like Blade Runner meets Godzilla and and you know is as, is as epic and as awesome as that kind of sounds um, so you know there are some amazing amazing things in here I, I would have liked maybe a little bit more work on some of the characters I feel like there could have been maybe a second draft of the script with regards to a couple of people because um, yeah the, the the human stuff I mean I think you know Guillermo as he explained there very much had a plan of what he wanted everyone to do and what he wanted why he took the choices that he did with with his characters um, but at the same time it didn't always quite sing to me and I, I kind of would have liked another pass at some of those lines so it's um, it's a success for me but perhaps a slightly qualified one so let's set the story up a little bit so this uh, this takes place starts off in the present day yeah when uh, out of nowhere, out of a rift in the Pacific Ocean, hence the name Pacific Rim, and from it emerge giant, and I mean giant monsters that devastate Earth's major cities. Uh, or we fight back, we kill a couple of them, but it's going to cost a lot of money to do so. So they come up with uh, an idea, which is to build huge robots, yeah. which are pilot, which is a very manga thing. I'm not a huge manga guy, but I believe this is an, uh, inspired by a, a manga property. And the, the pilots are inside uh, the robot's head and uh, one controls the left hemisphere of the robot one controls the right hemisphere of the robot and yeah. they merge telepathically in something called the drift and therefore they can control these robots and they fight the kaiju but the kaiju overwhelm Earth's forces so we, we pick up the movie in the year 2025 something like that roughly a little bit later maybe yeah and uh, mankind is about to make a last stand led by Charlie Hunnam 
out of Sons of Anarchy, British actor, and uh, Lufa. Uh, Stringer Bell himself a Idris stacker, Elba a stacker as, yeah, Pentecost the names in this movie are astonishing so the, the lead character is Raleigh Beckett Idris Elba is Stacker Pentecost and Rinko Kikuchi who's the young pilot who wants to join them yeah. is Mako Mori yes and Max Martini who's a brilliant actor uh, we mentioned him on the uh, an interview with Guillermo uh, he's been great in things on TV like like the unit for years uh, plays a character called Hercules Hansen now all these, all these characters were born in the present day I don't know anyone called Stacker Pentecost I've never met a Hercules Hansen. I know a Nick DeSimley, that's as exotic as it gets. That's, that's <laughs> or Kemsley in the podcast. <laughs> or Kemsley in the podcast. Um, yeah, it is kind of slightly removed from the real world, let's yeah. say. It definitely has a fantastical thing. At no point does it have the president on a screen keeping monitoring what's going on, which would yeah. probably be happening if this was happening in the real well, world. Well, there's a sense that the outfit of the kaiju has completely remodelled world politics. So there's now, yeah. rather than a US president, there's some sort of UN world group uh, almost like the uh, the the shield people in uh, in the Avengers. Sure, but the movie doesn't really get into that too much. It doesn't. It really. doesn't, but it's enough to make you think that that's what's happening. Yeah. yeah, but it's a really interestingly developed idea, and I think there's a bit of great world building where they set everything up in a really great montage at the beginning. Yeah, they sort of they sort of set this up, but don't actually spend a lot of time on it. I mean, Guillermo was telling us he wrote 400 pages of backstory, and that's only sort of vaguely alluded to, which I think is actually a good thing because a lot of this summer's films have felt over-plotted and over-explained and, and this one, generally speaking, doesn't. They get a whole load of exposition out of the way in the first ten minutes and then just get on with the story. And it is very much it feels very much like an adventure story for boys and for once I don't mean that necessarily as a diss. I think it is, in that, I mean that in the best possible way. It feels like a movie that's designed to make you cheer and whoop and go home and play with your toys and bash them together yeah. um, but in a really fun way and at its best it absolutely delivers that you know? Yeah, it, it won't be for everyone. I think. I think if I were twelve years old, this movie would be would be rocking my world. It would yeah. be consuming my every waking thought, and I'd be playing with massive action figures, as you said. But it's not for everyone. That you know, people are going to be numbed slightly by the destruction. Uh, the characters aren't maybe as well drawn as they might have been. Uh, some of the dialogue is pretty much on the nose. Charlie Day and uh, Bern Gorman uh, play the comic relief two scientists, mm. and your reaction to them will depend entirely on whether you think Charlie Day's screeching is funny. Um, but you know the uh, as you said the action scenes the Battle of Hong Kong is astonishing perhaps the best action sequence of the summer perhaps yeah. I am inclined to agree with that the, yeah. the, the action was fantastic it's a shame that all the fights take place at night I would have liked to see a little bit more variety yeah uh, interestingly on set I think they were talking about one of them being during the day and I think they changed that at some point so maybe it just became too difficult it to seems make it work. Yeah, also Guillermo in his interview with us said that you know he was inspired to do the Battle of Hong Kong especially at night because he was flying through Hong Kong in a, in a helicopter at night as rain came down and neon just made yeah. him think oh this is what I want to do also I think the final battle not to give too much away but it takes place underwater so it doesn't really matter if it's day or night no sure but apart sure. from that there's only one other battle so no, no sure but it would have been nice to have seen a different got a different flavour of, of kind of robot action I think that the Battle of Hong Kong is effective partly because you get a sense of the scale because yeah. they're actually come onto land and they're using boats and trucks as weapons and there's a sense of that missing a little bit elsewhere in the film I wanted more of the action that we're championing. It was great, but I wanted more battles. I found that the internal logic of how the kaiju battled the Jaegers was ropey because sometimes things... They'd use certain weapons that would work really, really well, but they wouldn't do it later, um, which I found quite confusing. Generally, I felt the logic, it kind of really lent on its... I felt Saturday morning TV children's cartoon origins of what does it matter? I mean, just, you know... 
you're just enjoying it. You don't really pick it apart in that way. Um, but for me, I felt there was so much time with these non-robot scenes that I had plenty of brain space to go, hang on, wait a second, if that's that, then how's this? But maybe that's just my... It does, yeah, it does get bogged down a little bit in the Shatterdome in the, the second act. There's a portion of the film where it's all about people's issues and trying to resolve, you know, these problems that they've had in their childhood and stuff, and it starts getting a little bit slow for a film which is about robots uh, slugging monsters. Um, but, you know, the action was good, and my other niggle was I would have liked to have seen different varieties of robot, the ro- bit more differentiation, different weapons and stuff. It was yeah, because there is a, there is a, or there was a puma-shaped robot from Peru, which would have been quite cool to see that, but we, we yeah. you, you glimpse it as a as a wreck, but it would have yeah. been quite cool to see something oh, like man. that in action. I would have loved to have seen but, that. But as as sheer spectacle, it gave me the same sense I got from Avatar of just beautiful design, mm. amazing mm. cinematography. Mm. The first time that they strap themselves into a robot is amazing. It's just this 10 minute yeah. stretch which is sugar rush. And also those robot heads were all mechanical and that works because you get a sense of weight and of, of presence from them which which you don't necessarily if it's all CG as in some films. So yeah, yeah we I, give I, this three stars. We give it three stars and I think uh, you know, I'd love to have seen what Guillermo would have done with uh, The Hobbit and he stayed on our project but We'll never know. We'll never know. Okay, three stars for Pacific Rim. Uh, moving on now, we have Monsters University. We've talked about it already. And where Sully and Mike meet for the first time. And hey, they don't get on. What? Did not see that coming. Uh, thoughts on this one? I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Uh, Monsters, Inc., the first one, is one of my favourite Pixar films. I just think the, the, the sheer creativity with the characters, the yeah. design, just the ideas that they come up with. Uh, the Pixar guys are genius when it comes to you know taking a theme like this and just running with it and uh yeah i mean although as a prequel uh you do have the issue that these guys are trying to graduate in something which turns out to be completely useless um as we already know from the second film but it's really fun it's really well plotted um and uh, yeah I, I very much enjoyed it yeah, it's got a lot of great jokes, got a lot of heart. Uh, I don't think it's quite as good as Monsters, uh, Inc., but I've seen it twice. I should tell you something, I think. Yeah, I, w- I would agree. I, d- I don't think it's quite up there with Monsters, Inc., but it is It is very good. And I think what's really interesting, without giving too much away, um, the, the sort of central portion of the film is about uh, Sully and Mike trying to win the scare games with this sort of loser fraternity that they've ended up with called Uzma Kappa. Including Charlie Day, who's in both Monster hey, movies this weekend. Hey, wow. Day versus that. Day. Mm. Um He's much better in this than he is in Pacific Rim. Yes, that's true. Um, but yeah, he, the, they're in this uh, Scare Games. With any other uh, animation house, I think, if at the end of the Scare Games, that would be the end of the film. And I think what's interesting is that with Pixar, that's not the case. And they don't just build it around the, the kind of slightly obvious, you know. I mean, we've seen, I've seen intra-fraternity competitions like this in things like The House Bunny and you know, uh, Sydney White. I mean, really bad films. So I'm glad that they went a step beyond that and did something else and managed to keep surprising us. And I think fair play to them for that. It was That was well done and the right decision to take. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it has my uh, favourite joke of the year as well, I think, so far. It's quite funny. Uh, it's a really, really funny movie, uh, which I won't say, I won't give it away, but it's, uh, it's, it's someone listening to something that you might not expect. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. And Which it also has uh, probably the year's best uh, slug attempting to run. <laughs> oh, that was wonderful. Four English stars. So there you go. 
that is a recommendation definitely get yourself down to your local multiplex also out this week the Irish Horror Citadel the re-release of Cleopatra to celebrate its 50th anniversary and Alex Gibney's documentary We Steal Secrets the story of WikiLeaks which we're sure Julian Assange will have screened for him in his hidey hole in an embassy and that is it for this monster sized Empire podcast just two reviews this week uh, we're off to Comic Con next week as we said so you'll be in new hands as Phil Dissemlian steps into the presenting chair for the first time given his art house allegiances that means next week's show will probably be subtitled uh, on that same show we'll also be talking to Simon Pegg Nick Frost and Edgar Wright about the last slice of fried cornetto the world's end plus and I know that we're very excited about this I'm missing this I'm gutted about this Lord Nicholas of Cage will be dropping into the pod booth to talk about his new movie The Frozen Ground now that's what I call a podcast do keep an eye out for a Comic Con special podcast as I said coming to you from San Diego as well and if you're looking for World's End spoilers Wright, Frost and Peg have contributed to a magnificent World's End spoiler special podcast which will be up in a couple of weeks time to give people a chance to see it and get acclimatised right that is it it's goodbye from Helen bye bye it's goodbye from Nick see ya it's goodbye from Ali. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to cancel the apocalypse. Or at least see if I can push it back maybe after lunch. Anyone fancy Nando's? See you next time.